We're turning to Nehemiah chapter 10. And we'll read, uh, we'll begin actually in the last verse of chapter 9. Uh, Chapter 9 was the great confession of sin uh, by the nation after the law had been read in chapter 8. Chapter 9, they confessed their sin. Chapter 10, we see, is their response now uh, in wanting to live um, a renewed life of obedience. And I mentioned this last time, but really, yeah, the the chapter should begin at verse 38 of chapter 9. This goes with what we're about to read. So let's begin our reading of the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 38. Because of all this, referring to the law of God and and how they've made confession, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Soraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Malak, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Genethon, Barak, Melshalom, Abijah, Minjamin, Maatziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests and the Levites. Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hadiah, Kalida, Peleah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zachor, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Benai, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Parash, Peath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Benai, Bunai, Asgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Ader, Hezekiah, Atzer, Hodiah, Hashem, Bazai, Hareph, Anathoth, Nebai, Machpiash, Meshalam, Hetzer, Meshezebel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Anea, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashab, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehem, Hashabna, Maaseah, Ahia, Hanan, Anon, Malak, Haram, Baana. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all of knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. 
And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lot for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it's written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. As far as the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word for us tonight, uh, we are picking up with Israel during a time of revival in the land. In 539 B.C., Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, had issued a decree that allowed any Israelites that so wished to return to their homeland. And about 100 years later, in 445 B.C., Nehemiah shows up. Uh, under express permission of uh, King Artaxerxes uh, to rebuild the walls of the city. Now that project being complete, we see that Nehemiah and other leaders like Ezra um, and uh, the many that are are listed there in the first 27 verses, uh, I'll acknowledge to you a kind of recurring nightmare I had this week was kind of as I read those not jumping down to the next line and getting stuck on one line, kind of on loop, and just reading, because they all kind of sound the same, and I wouldn't know it until I look up and everybody's going, what are you doing? Um, but those are the leaders, there's a list of leaders. We see that Nehemiah, Ezra, other leaders have taken it upon themselves to, now that the building, or that the wall has been rebuilt, to rebuild the people of God. There's this reformation at work now, uh, a revival So they heard God's law in chapter 8. They confessed their sin in chapter 9. Now in chapter 10, we read of how the people voluntarily, you see it at the end of chapter 9, really, right, that verse we read, enter into a covenant, voluntarily enter into a covenant before God to promise that they will keep his laws. And the way one scholar puts it, he says the covenant in, in chapter 10 that we read of, it's a covenant to keep a covenant, 
right? Because God had already entered into a covenant with Israel. He already entered into this national legal covenant at Sinai, right? He brings them out of Egypt, brings them to the foot of his holy mountain in Exodus chapter 19. And then in 20, 21, 22, 23, we read of this law that God gives his people, uh, which is the, 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 the foundation of a relationship. If you're going to be mine, and if I'm going to be yours, you have to live a certain way. You have to look a certain way. And so he gives them a covenant. That's already there. But what they're doing here is promising again that they're going to keep the covenant they're already in. So when they say, uh, because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing, it's not a new covenant. It's a covenant to keep an old covenant. They're underscoring their former promise with a newer promise. Um, you've heard of, uh, you know, married couples renewing their vows. That's kind of the idea here. When, th- when that happens, um, the couple are not making different promises. They're not making better promises. Rather, they're making a new promise to keep their old promise. So that's something like what's taking place here. The nation is renewing their vows with God. They're renewing their covenant and in doing so, we can see two things about this renewal, this uh, covenant to keep a covenant, this commitment to God. That's what this is really all about. They're committing themselves to God. And we see two things. First, the commitment is public. And secondly, it's specific. It's public and it's specific. Um, those two things come out at us clearly from the text. Um, but I'm going to add a third that that isn't here explicitly, but the entire scope of Scripture demands it. And that is that when we commit to the Lord, we, we must do this publicly. We must do it specifically. But our commitments to God must also be Christ-dependent. Public, specific, and Christ-dependent. And we'll talk about that uh, in a few minutes. But first, notice that this covenant is public. This commitment to God, this renewal of their commitment to God, is done publicly And by this, I mean to suggest that the people are not hiding uh, their commitment to God. They declare it openly, and they even voluntarily make a written record of this covenant, uh, a record of the fact that they're entering into this covenant relationship. So they're not ashamed of it. The the covenant is a, a written document that includes the signatures of these key leaders that we read of, Uh, Most of them are individuals. Some of them are family names. uh, But we see uh, that there's a number of individuals that are stepping forward and and they're saying, uh, put my name on this so that people will know I am for Yahweh. I'm standing for God. I'm I'm with him and I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed about it. And it has a number of people's names, but you need to recognize that uh, as they are the leaders of the people, they're putting their names on the document by extension, they're representing every individual in Israel. So the, the entire nation is putting their name on this. And we see that in verses, uh, if you look at verse 28 and 29. So after we have that big, long list of hard-to-pronounce names, then verse 28 says, the rest of the people, and then it, it kind of gives categories, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and uh, people who separated themselves uh, from uh, foreigners and or, or, I'm sorry, foreigners who separate themselves and come into Israel and their wives and their sons, their daughters, and people who are, who are old enough to understand, join with their brothers. So the rest of the people join with those that you have just read listed there. So they're all doing this, right? 
Um, boys and girls, some of you will know that right beneath the concluding line of the Declaration of Independence, there's a, uh, a gigantic signature by John Hancock, right? A famous signature with fanciful letters. Um, and John Hancock was the, the president of the Continental Congress when the Declaration of Independence was adopted. And so as the presiding officer, he wanted his name first. He wanted it uh, front and center, so to speak, and he wanted it to be visible. He, he, he was saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm the one presiding over this body, and I'm not going to be embarrassed about what we have just um, drafted together and, and the, the motions that we have made. And so he puts his name uh, real big, and, and, you know, there's this kind of folklore story that says part of the reason he did that is because he wanted to make sure that when it got to England, the king could read it without needing to use his glasses. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, but it makes a cool story. Uh, but the idea, though, is that he wasn't embarrassed about his name being on that, and that's, that's like all of these individuals here. It's a way for them to, to, to say, we're not ashamed of God. And what's interesting is that there was nowhere in the Bible that stipulated if you're going to enter into a covenant with God, you need to put it in writing. This was their idea. They said, let's let's actually put our names down somewhere because it was a way of showing how serious they were about committing to God. So, you know, John Hancock was saying to England, if you're upset, you know who to come after. I want it on record. This is where I stand. That's kind of what Israel's doing. You know, in Presbytery meetings um, or General Assembly or any other particular body that is run by Robert's Rules, which I can't think of what those would be. But, they're, you know, they, these are as dry as dirt, right, these meetings. They're the most boring things in the world. But there's sometimes they get really exciting when a controversial vote happens, right, and there's a lot of debate and people are arguing about it. And then the vote goes in one particular direction. Here's the exciting part. The people who lost the vote sometimes will say, if they feel really passionate about it, they'll stand up and they say, I want my no vote recorded in the minutes. Ho-ho! Now we're, <laughs> this is exciting. This is like primetime television now, okay? So what does that mean? They're saying that when people read the minutes of this, maybe 10 years down the road, they don't know when. I want it on record that I did not vote for this motion. That's how strongly they stand against it. That they want to know. So the Presbytery of Michigan, Ontario, decided to do X. And they, they think it's so bad and so wrong. They wanted to say, the Presbytery of Michigan, Ontario, decided to do X. Except Pastor Cruz recorded his no vote. That's the idea. And so people can look down and say, oh, we think that's a terrible view, but these 10 ministers, they stood for what's right. So that's about as exciting as it gets in Presbytery. But the idea is if your name is written, people know what you stand for. It's a way of showing how serious you are. That's why they're writing this down. We are serious. We're, we're, we're taking this public. We want people to know we stand for Yahweh. He's really our God. And this is just another instance of a principle that frequently shows up in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And the principle is this. God's people are not only known by him, but they are known by one another and by the watching world. There's no secret agent Christianity in the Bible, right? There, there, there is never anywhere in the scriptures that provides for this idea that you can be a Christian and not tell anybody about it. That, that all you need is your Bible and your prayer closet and nothing else. 
Now, the Bible makes it very clear. You need your Bible, you need your prayer closet, and you need the assembly of the saints. You need to say publicly, I'm with Jesus. Right? And so that principle, which is, it's not just that God knows his people, but other, others know who, who belong to God. That, that then spills over into the New Testament with the presupposition that the apostles have when they write their epistles uh, that there are a, def- a, a definite number of people who belong to a particular body uh, called a church, and that church is led by particular elders. This idea of church membership, it's not that we just invented it. It's covenantal. Church membership is a covenantal idea. And the idea is that it's not just that God knows me. It's that others know that I'm with God as well. And so if you want to grow in your commitment to God, like the Israelites want to do here, then we can learn from them. The first step is not being ashamed to own your Lord. You make your commitment public. Now, the way we do that is not simply by making a public profession of faith. Uh, It's also through our conduct. It's through walking in God's ways. And that's what the people are after here, too. So we see verse 29. You look there. Uh, The people make, uh, or they show how serious they are because they're willing to take on a curse if they fail. And so verse 29 uh, says uh, that they join with their brothers, the nobles, and they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. So what it says about to enter into a curse, that's just a way of acknowledging that covenants were serious business. And if you didn't keep the covenant, there would be, um, there'd be consequences. There'd be a curse. And they're saying, we're willing to do that. Uh, and so they, they make a general commitment there to walk in God's law that was given by Moses. So basically the whole Pentateuch, um, uh, the, the Torah, the, the law of God as we find it in Genesis through um, uh, Deuteronomy, thank you. Uh, that, that's what they're committing themselves to. But that's a generic commitment. Notice then, they're not content with that generic commitment. They make it specific. Right? That's the second thing. We said they commit to God publicly, but then specifically. And the intention then of this covenant to keep a covenant wasn't just to pay lip service to the Mosaic law, but to highlight three problem areas in contemporary Israeli life to acknowledge them and to redouble their efforts in them, to conform themselves in these three areas more so to God's uh, law. And those three areas are marriage, the Sabbath, and worship. So they get specific, marriage, Sabbath, and worship. Verse 30, marriage. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, so remember, what's this covenant about? It's about recommitting to the Lord. Uh, This is about a revival of religion. So when you hear this, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land. When you read this, recognize this has nothing to do with race and everything to do with religion. Right? The issue about the peoples of the land wasn't that they were of a different ethnicity. It's that they had different worship. They had different gods. They had idols. And we know it's not a racial issue because uh, of... Uh, who Moses married and who Boaz married. They married people who were outside of the covenant. That was always allowed as long as those people then submitted to uh, the covenant and became, as it were, Jews. But that wasn't happening here, right? There was this syncretism where they were 
taking not only foreign wives, but bringing their foreign gods, too. And so they're saying, we're not going to do that. Now, why is that so important? Why would that show up in a covenant that's about committing to God? Well, you see, we cannot put God first unless we, wait for it, put God first. Right? We cannot put God first unless we actually put God first. People say they love God all the time, but then you see in their lives they have other loves that are actually greater than God. And in the biblical conception, really loving God is wholly loving God, entirely loving God. To really love God is to love him most, and anything less isn't love at all, according to the Bible. And to love him most entails ensuring that all our other loves, even our lesser loves, come into conformity with him. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. He's talking about those whose hearts are not divided, but, but have a unified aim, a unifi- have one love, and that love is God. If you love God with all your heart, you will order your life accordingly. Well, here the people are acknowledging in that most intimate sector of life, their, their marriages, their, their spousal relationships, and their family, they were not prioritizing God. Uh, there is no human relationship more important in this life than our romantic relationships, than our spouses. And if we say we are committed to God, but then we commit our marriage to someone who is not committed to God or maybe less committed to God, our hearts will become divided. We, we miss out there on that, that declaration, that blessing, blessed are the pure in heart. Our, our hearts become divided. It's natural, right? We we love our spouses. We, we want what's best for them. We, we want to enjoy life with them. We want to do what they want to do. And, and if they don't have the same aim as us, which is the Lord, we're going to be split. We're going to be torn. We're going to be torn in two directions. And our love for God will inevitably become diluted. That's why Paul carries this principle into the new covenant. Right, where we learn it's not just about Israel. It's about believers. This is just what it means to be a Christian. You have to commit in this specific way. You're... you're your relationships need to be conformed to, to what God's law says. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with darkness, with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? So committing yourself to God means committing your family to God and your family life to God, committing your marriage to God. And when we do the opposite, Heartache and disaster occurs, and uh, maybe somebody will tell me after the service, well, you know, I, I know of someone, or maybe you're, you know, it's, it's your story. I, I know somebody who was married uh, to an unbeliever, but then the unbeliever converted, and I said, praise God, that's wonderful. Uh, but that's the exception that proves the rule. That is not, <laughs> we do not um, uh, base our practices in terms of our Christian ethic and, and ordering our lives on exceptions. We base our lives on the law of God. And this is what God's law tells us. Committing ourselves to him means committing our loves to him, committing our lives to him, committing our families to him. It also means committing our time. That's the Sabbath. That's the second thing they talk about. Verse 31, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we won't buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day, and we'll forego the crops of the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. 
We see as Jerusalem had become an occupied city, outside practices like um, uh, buying and selling on the Lord's Day, well, we call it the Lord's Day, they would call it the Sabbath, had crept in and become kind of commonplace. That's why they say if peoples of the land who don't know what the Sabbath is bring in goods into the city to sell, we're not going to tell them get out of here, but we're not going to partake in this. Apparently they had been, though. This is something they had they had let um, kind of go, they, they, they had laxed this law. Other principles, like the yearly Sabbath, had also been ignored. So that's the weekly Sabbath. But then you recall in Exodus uh, 23, Israel could sow the land and, and till the land and, and harvest the land for six years. But the seventh year, they had to let it go fallow and they couldn't touch it. And they're saying, we're, we haven't been doing that either. And we're going to recommit ourselves to that. Now you think, what does a law like this have to do with committing to the Lord. You know, what's the law with, with not, you know, farming every seven years? What's that have to do with committing ourselves to God? Well, that law was a testing point for Israel's trust in Yahweh. Uh, they had to rely on him to, to provide their needs in an overabundance in the sixth year so that they didn't actually have to work in the seventh year, didn't have to harvest. And that's hard. And I just want to say what I think we're all, we all know, but sometimes we feel like it's not right to say. Let me say it for you. Following God is hard. It is hard. That's a hard thing to do. Can you imagine, uh, you know, not going to the grocery store for an entire year because you're supposed to trust that somehow the groceries will come to you? God will provide somehow? That's, that's hard. Following God is hard. Following God means sacrifice. And that's true, not just on that big scale, that yearly scale, but even the weekly rhythm of Sabbath. It's hard. What you're doing right now, I think it's the greatest thing in the world. I believe the Bible tells us it's the greatest thing in the world, to come into God's house on God's day and worship him. But I'll be honest, it's a hard thing what you're doing right now. It's hard. It would be easier to be at the office right now or to be shopping at the store with some friends. Now, that sounds, you know, how could it be easier to be at the office than to be at church? Because this takes faith, that doesn't. Right? When, when I'm doing chores around the house, or, or going into work, putting hours in, or if I'm, I'm get, getting stuff at the store, I'm doing something uh, that I know this will lead to this end. I need money, so I work, and that's going to get me money. I, I need groceries, so I go to the store, and that's going to get me groceries, whatever it is, right? That makes sense to us. But to take an entire day where we don't do anything like that and we rest is hard. Because it means we have to acknowledge that, guess what? The world keeps spinning even if we're not doing something. Right? That God is the one who sustains all things. That God doesn't need us to keep the world running. And so when I give up my time to God's plan, his way, his will, I testify to the fact that, that I am, in fact, not in control, and I've never been in control, and he's the one in control. That's a hard thing to do, but it's so important that we do that. It, it really does um, shade our entire relationship with God, the Sabbath principle. And that's why it's specifically mentioned here, because if we're going to commit to the Lord entirely, we need to commit our time. Just like your relationship shows you where your heart really is, your relationship with other people, in particular spouses— uh, how you spend your time also indicates where your heart is. So if you spend your time, especially on God's day, spend your time with God, 
we see that your heart is with God. Okay, finally, there is a third aspect that the people specifically committed themselves to the Lord, and that's in their practices of worship. They acknowledged uh, their failures in the area of worship. They're renewing a commitment to observe the, observe the uh, worship of God uh, that takes place at the temple. So look at verse 32, and I won't read them again. Verses 32 through 39, you'll see, though, it's all about the temple. The phrase, the house of our God, or, or th- phrases like that, show up nine times in these verses. And we see that these verses about them saying that they're going to obligate themselves to give their money to the temple, to give their produce, um, their materials. They're going to give, give wood. Their livestock is, is offerings. Even their firstborn children are going to be dedicated to the service of the Lord. Um, it, the, really, if you, all you need is the last sentence of the chapter. That's a good summary of what this is all about. Look at the very last sentence. We will not neglect the house of our God. That's what this is all about. It's about God's house. I hope it's easy to see how committing to the house of God is committing to God. How can you say you care about God if you don't care about the place where he shows up, where his presence dwells? And in the Old Covenant, his presence dwelt specifically in the temple. That's where he shows up. Now, I want you to note that this means that God is not after financial or material contributions from the people of Israel for the sake of financial or material contributions. Again, he's after their hearts. And just like with our relationships, just like with our time, our money shows something of our hearts. And so there were these laws given in Exodus about how they needed to give a a temple tax, right? And, And they needed to give a dedicate firstborn to the, to the children of God and all these things. That was a way of showing that you were for God. If you were for his worship and the things that were necessary to keep that worship functioning, you were for God. And here they, they, they double down. They even add some things that aren't in Exodus. They go over and above uh, the initial covenant to say we're really about the house of our God because to be about God's house is to be about God. Now, we've been talking a lot you know, the past few years about our house of worship And uh, even just the last few weeks, uh, talking specifically about this opportunity to worship in a new space. And uh, uh, Perry, you know, anticipated what I was going to say here when he made his announcement. He mentioned, you know, a newer and bigger space, whether it's this one or another one, is going to meet more uh, financial needs. It's going to mean increased financial obligations. And so we're going to want to raise enough money uh, if we need to. Uh, put down a down payment or, or to make renovations like Perry mentioned and things like that. And so you will be asked to, to, to prayerfully consider giving above and beyond your normal giving for the sake of God's house. But here's what I want you to remember. This is the most important part. This is not me pitching you giving more right now. This is me giving you a pastoral word about giving. When we ask as, as a leadership for you to consider that, You need to keep this in mind. Your giving needs to be an indication of your commitment not to a new worship space, not to a new building, not to a a new ministry initiative. It needs to be an indication of your commitment to God. And of course, if we move forward, it will be because we believe this is what God wants for our church. Because this is what we think God wants for us as his people, because we think it's faithful to God to move forward. 
And we want our giving to be a reflection of our faithfulness to God as well. We want our giving to show we're committed to him. And so, if you think God is in this, right? If you think this is how you, if you think we're following God in this, then let your giving back that up. But we're not asking for financial contributions for the sake of financial contributions, just like God isn't here. That's not the point. It's an indication. It's one indication, not the only indication, but it's an indication of being committed to God. And so we see this specific way in which the people renew their covenant with the Lord. They say in our family life, in in our work life, and in our worship life, we are going to renew our commitment to God. These are areas that we have we have uh, grown slack in. We've 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 fallen off the wagon in these areas. We're going to get back on it. We're going to commit ourselves to the Lord. And these are three areas that that we as new covenant believers also could do well to commit ourselves to God in. Uh, but the Christian recognizes that if we're going to commit ourselves to the Lord, it must be done through the mercies and the merits of Jesus Christ. And why is that? And the answer is this, because no matter how zealous or ambitious we are, no, no matter how on fire we are for the Lord, and let's, let's put it in that language. These people, they're on fire for God. They're really excited. They're going above and beyond what they need to do to show how, how um, uh, uh, zealous they are for the Lord. But here's the thing. No matter how zealous or ambitious you are for God and your commitments to God, you will fail. We all will. Chapter 10 details their covenant to keep the covenant that they had formerly broken. And we said three specific areas, right? Marriage, Sabbath, and worship. Well, flip over to chapter 13. We go to chapter 13, and we learn that Israel does what Israel does best, and they've failed already. Look at verse 23. Nehemiah says, And in those days also I saw the Jews who had married the women of Ashdod. Or how about verse 17? Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Or compare verse 11 with the end of verse with the end of chapter 10. Remember how chapter 10 ended? We will not neglect the house of our God. And then in verse 11 of chapter 13, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? What a picture of the depravity of the human condition. And that's why we need a savior. And that's why we need a substitute. One who keeps all of God's laws for us. One who commits to the Lord and never turns back. We should all be committed uh, to order our relationships and our time and our worship in such a way that God is glorified and pleased. Um, There wouldn't be anything wrong with even writing it down like they do here and saying, you know, maybe you do it as a family. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord in these ways this year. But just note, when you commit yourself to God... The only commitment that counts is when you do it through Jesus Christ. When you do it through Jesus. The old language of making a commitment to Christ, talking of conversion, that, that language is exactly right. 
Have you made a commitment to Christ? That's the question. No other commitment matters. So yes, stand for God publicly. You must. Stand for him specifically. You must. But never stand alone. Stand in the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would renew our zeal and our commitment to you, uh, especially out of a gratefulness and a thankfulness of all that you have done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, who gave himself entirely for us, who uh, lived uh, perfectly in accordance with your laws, fulfilled the law for us, and yet even took on the curse of lawbreakers such as ourselves that uh, we can receive your blessing. So now, empowered by that blessing, empowered by that gospel, would we go forward and commit ourselves unreservedly, entirely to you, Lord. We give our lives to you. Indeed, we say... uh, Take my life, Lord, and let it be consecrated to thee. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.